Good morning. My name is Beth Campbell. This morning our scripture reading is from 1 Peter. You can follow along in your Bibles or it will be up on the screens. I'll be reading from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7 from the New American Standard Bible. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. My name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I want to start this morning with a word of prayer, so would you bow your heads with me? Father, we invite you to fill this space and be in our minds and in our hearts as we look at your word together. We pray for you to meet us exactly where we're at today, all of us coming from our own lives with needs and hopes and struggles, challenges. Things we're celebrating, things we're mourning, and we pray that you would minister to us all. We look to you this morning for the things that only you can do, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We are in the middle of a series uh, that we have called Faith, Hope, and Love, and uh, the book is written to a church that was suffering, to a persecuted church, to a church that... Uh, was experiencing pain and grief and sadness and uh, being surprised by trials and ordeals uh, for themselves, for their loved ones, for their community. They were scattered. They were separated from their loved ones. And in the midst of that, Peter is encouraging this group to suffer well. He's challenging them to find God in the midst of suffering and in doing so, Uh, really find their own salvation, find their own uh, sanity and hope in life. And today, uh, I want us to think a little bit about uh, what it means to find strength, even when you feel you are positionally weak and disadvantaged. All of us have seasons and areas points uh, in our personality or in circumstances where we find ourselves weaker than others, where we have less of an advantage, less of a natural bent or a talent or experience. Uh, Life has thrown us some lemons, uh, I heard this week, and you can't make lemonade unless they also give you water and sugar. What if all you have is lemons? What What are you supposed to do? And uh, the image behind me is the image of the cross, 
And I just want to ask you this question and think about this for a second. Does the cross, either historically or uh, in your own mind, does it represent strength or weakness? The word uh, for the cross, the crucifix, uh, has its origins in a curse word. It was not to be said. Uh, It wasn't a word that little children were allowed to use because of the horrific instrument of torture and death that it represented physically, but also the the, uh, shame that it really represented. To be hung on a cross was to be exposed and named to the world that there is no good in you, that the only thing you deserved was torture and death. And yet today we cling to this symbol as a symbol of life and hope. And so I ask this question, strength or weakness, and various answers fill the room, and as it should be. And that's the uh, tension I want us to think about today. What is strength? What is it really? Where does it come from? And what does it do? What mimics strength? What really is weakness? Uh, Peter is actually the author of this letter, is uh, very qualified to talk about this idea of strength and weakness. He was a a fisherman by trade, uh, and he, uh, like most um, uh, blue-collar workers in his time, he didn't have much education. Uh, He had a big mouth on him, and his life uh, tells a story of a man who relied on his outer strength for much of his life, and then the story of his own salvation as he uh, met Jesus and began to follow Jesus and then began to uh, continue to follow Jesus through the cross, onto the resurrection, onto his own death, and onto his own meeting Jesus again, is really the story of Peter uh, finding uh, his inner strength. And learning to rely on the strength of the cross rather than on his own strength. We see an earlier Peter who uh, was rebuked by Jesus as being Satan. There was a time when Jesus called him Satan and told him to get behind him. Uh, He once uh, was so impetuous and reactive and relied on his physical strength so much that he uh, took a sword. uh, And the only one, uh, maybe... And he started fighting for Jesus physically in the Garden of Gethsemane when when, uh, soldiers had come to arrest Jesus, and he cut off the ear of a servant. And then Jesus rebuked him for that. And then finally, uh, some of you know, he denied Jesus three times. After being told he would do so, uh, caught in the moment, his his, uh, weakness uh, was exposed, his outer strength was stripped from him and his fear of life and, uh, and the uh, sort of the little man that he actually was on the inside, he denied Jesus uh, to a servant girl, which was a point of great shame and pain for him. And then uh, he sort of eats all of his words and all of his words of uh, allegiance to Christ and ways that he... Uh, Uh, wanted to believe that he was as a person. He ate all of that, and he uh, forsakes his calling as a disciple of Christ, and he goes back to fishing. And then Jesus invites him then now, uh, after the resurrection, invites him to live a new life uh, from inner strength, 
to be doing things he does not want to be doing, to be dressed by somebody other than himself and walking a path he didn't choose for himself. And he is freed at that time from uh, the fear of man that he lived with. And he begins to experience inner strength. And even so, even so, uh, years later, the Apostle Paul rebukes him again for denying the gospel of grace because Peter sided with man instead of with the uh, truth, and he cowered before man. And so the Apostle Paul publicly rebukes him. And we have uh, a record of that in the book of Galatians. And so Peter's story is uh, one of a man who only knew outer strength, but inside he was fearful and he was weak. And so it's no surprise then uh, that uh, Peter's personal emphasis on the gospel is genuine, imperishable strength, which comes from within. And if you take those words and you trace the entire uh, letter of 1 Peter, you can see that thread. This is his gospel. Genuine, imperishable strength, which only comes from within. And he writes about a Jesus who, though he externally looked weak, he was able to find strength uh, from within. Today, uh, in this service, we're going to be doing three baptisms. And uh, uh, the word baptize uh, is the word baptizo, and it just literally means to immerse. And so you are immersed in the water, symbolizing death. Death to what? Death to yourself. Death to your outer strength. Death death to you grasping at trying to be strong from without. And then rising up, breaking through the surface of the water again in life, life born again into what? Into strength that comes from God. It's a baptism of grace, relying not on your own strength or your own works, uh, but on what only God can do in you and through you. Uh, In the Covenant Church, which is what we are, we baptize infants and adults, and we do both kinds of baptisms because our emphasis is not on the volition of the human being. We're not saying that we're just celebrating the fact that somebody has made a decision for Christ, but what we are primarily and more foundationally celebrating is uh, the fact that God Grace, what we call prevenient grace, has been going long before volition was a thing. Long before you're able to know between right and wrong. That that same grace has been working in you. And the baptism uh, represents a choice that uh, was made primarily by God for you. And has been working in your life rather than a decision that you have made. And so we celebrate uh, God's grace uh, in baptism. Uh, My own personal uh, story of finding uh, strength uh, from Christ and from within rather than uh, on my outside, uh, the first one that really comes to mind and is the deepest and truest story for me, and some of you have heard me share bits uh, of this, is that um, I was a church planner for 12 years, uh, and church planning is starting churches, and uh, churches have to start, you know, they don't just exist. Uh, especially here in America, we see churches start all the time because we're a relatively young country. And it's uh, mostly guys like me uh, starting churches. And, um, and so I did that for 12 years. But I did that, uh, the way I experience it now, is from my extremities. 
you know, just using my muscles, which I have, you know, an abundance of, as you can see. Uh, so it wasn't a uh, hard mistake to make. Um, but it was me trying to use my gifts and my charm and trying to plant churches and almost physically willing, trying to will these churches to grow. And I did it at the expense of my health and at the expense of my soul, really. And there was a time in my life, and it sounds like an exaggeration, but if you check with Susie, she will confirm this is true. I literally did not know how to still sit still enough to sit down and finish a child's book with my daughter. A mentor of mine who walked me through uh, uh, what I later experienced and named as burnout uh, told me the story of how for the first time uh, in his life as a young dad, he was able to sit in a kiddie pool with his child for an hour. That, That fact boggled my mind. I could not imagine sitting in a kiddie pool for an hour. Well, because it's disgusting. (laughs) No, but really, because how do you do that? How can... And so uh, I went through this deep burnout experience where I was running on nothing but fumes after 12 years of uh, sprinting and then sprinting and then sprinting and then sprinting. And I did that six different times. I came to a place where I just had nothing left to give, And I couldn't imagine how uh, much longer I could go on like this. And so um, I was in conversation with the church and with the denomination, and they forced me to go on a four-week vacation. And uh, it was immediate. It was, okay, Peter, your last Sunday was your last Sunday. The church will take it from here. You need to just stop. And so I just stopped, and it took me two weeks of pacing in my heart and sometimes physically before I can begin to feel like I was actually resting. And then I vacationed for about four or five days before I felt the uh, sort of the anxiety and the um, pressures of life kicking in again, and then I started ramping back up. So in a four-week vacation time period, I only had about four or five days of actual vacation, and that was the best I can do at the time. And then uh, I went back to the church uh, and preach for, uh, I think, maybe one more month or so. And then I went on an uh, eight-week or six-week, six or eight-week sabbatical that they also asked me to go on. It was a really difficult and challenging time in my life. And the lesson that I learned from there was that there is a way that I was using and relying uh, so much on my external strength and my core, the core of who I was, my identity in Christ was so atrophied and so underdeveloped, it had finally caught up with me. It wasn't the church planting per se that caused me to experience burnout, but the church planting really was... Uh, a season in my life when the way I had been living my life all along just finally caught up to me. And I share this with you as a way to invite you to consider how your soul is doing today, how your soul has been. I know from conversation with many of you that you are deeply, deeply tired. 
And some of you know you are running at a pace that you cannot maintain and really should not maintain. You know, uh, physically speaking, uh, I'm probably in one of the healthiest seasons in my life. And I say that primarily based on uh, the focus on rest and core strength development emotionally, physically, and spiritually in my life. Because of the burnout experience, I feel so uh, keenly aware of how I'm actually doing and how whatever it is I am doing at the moment, one of the first questions I ask is, is this sustainable? Or am I just holding my breath till I get to the end? And if you are holding your breath, there's going to be an end and it's not going to be pretty. There's an invitation when you experience the end of your outer self to live a deeper, richer life from within. And this is the life that I think Peter is inviting us to consider using the occasion of wives and husbands here in this text. I want to invite you to be restored to the original image in which you were created, a life meant to be lived not by your strength, but by your trust in God. Someone who loves you more than uh, you know how to love yourself, better, wiser. And this God wants to connect with you and speak with you and lead you, guide you through life. And there's a way he wants you to live in humility, Ways of acknowledging your weakness and putting the outer in its proper place. Two questions today, and we are going to move quickly through this so that we can get to the baptisms. Uh, The first one is, what is strength? And second, what does it do? Okay, first, what is strength? Verse 1 begins with, in the same way, you wives... Be submissive. Now, Peter is asking the wives to do something amazing. He's asking the wives to hold on to their Christian faith, even when their husbands are not a Christian yet. Uh, Most scholars will tell you Peter was probably writing to uh, uh, an audience that was filled with wives who became Christians first and whose husbands uh, were not Christians yet. And uh, you have to know, in this historical context, husbands owned wives. They were considered property. They had the uh, threat of life hanging over them all the time. Husbands can literally kill their wives without any consequence of the law. There are many, many cases of this happening in this time. And in this context... Peter is asking the wives to be submissive to their husbands while maintaining their faith. And not only that, Peter is asking the wives to influence their husbands towards God so that they might become Christians. Husbands have all power, and yet Peter is asking the wives to be the powerful ones by influencing their husbands' eternal destiny. Now, this needs to be said Uh, We live in a really uh, horrible, horrible, horrible world if you are from the standpoint of a female. I mean, we have to acknowledge the fact that if you turn on the TV, most of the violence committed on this planet from the beginning to now is committed by men. 
It is, it is a fact of life that uh, the world is mostly patriarchal. There has been abuse of power. It's misogynistic. And women are uh, more often than not on the receiving end of the abuses of men. It's not just true in Peter's time. It's true on many different levels, even to this day. And I tell you, as a father to four girls, this is something I am very, very much aware of. I wonder all the time, how can I protect my girls? How can I help them navigate this world in such a way that they are not victimized? I don't want them to be the victims of an unfair, unjust world. But such is the case. And in this context, and actually in a much more extreme context than the ones we are accustomed to today, Peter is asking these wives to be submissive to their husbands. He's asking them to exercise tremendous resilience and inner strength, even though they are in a great disadvantage. And you notice Peter begins with, in the same way. And in this case, who is Peter referring to? He's referring to Jesus. He has just finished talking about the way Jesus suffered. And prior to that, he talked about how slaves suffered. And prior to that, he addressed all of the broader audience, the Christians who are being persecuted by the powers that be. Remember, who was in power? It was Nero, one of the most treacherous leaders to ever walk the face of the earth. So Peter is definitely not affirming slavery. He is not affirming Nero. He is not affirming the power and the abusive power that husbands and men tended to have. He's not affirming patriarchy. He's not affirming misogyny. He is saying in the same way that Jesus also suffered and was submissive to the powers that were, I'm asking you wives to be submissive to your husbands. So, enough said about that now, for now. The question is, what is strength then? If Jesus had this strength in the midst of submission, and the slaves are asked to have this strength, and persecuted Christians are asked to have this strength, what is this strength? I'm going to give you three descriptions of strength found in this passage. First, this kind of strength that Peter's writing about is personal Notice verse 4 talks about the hidden person of the heart. It's not a strength you have because of your circumstances, because of the advantages that you have, or the position that you hold. It's a strength that comes from you, the person. You bring this strength with you. You are a strong person, and you can look to this strength. There is a strength that is not relegated to your circumstances, to your position. That's the first thing. It's a hidden person of the heart thing. Second, this strength is based on truth. It's truth-based. Notice Peter talks about in verse 1, obedience to the word. There's a kind of alignment that you are experiencing with what you believe to be true. It's not just that beyond all circumstances you're able to be strong because you are personally a stubborn person or you are strong-willed or you are a tenacious person. But all of that is based on this idea, this 
feeling you have, what we might call a conviction that what you are doing or not doing is in alignment with the truth. So here's a little factoid about truth and decision-making. When it really comes down to it, when you shed enough light on a matter, truth tends to emerge. So when you make a decision, it's not really a decision that you make, but as truth emerges, you're able to see it, recognize it as true, and then submit together to the truth. When you are actually strong, it's based on a conviction about what is true. Okay? Third, looks to God. True strength looks to God. Verse 5 talks about trusting God, about looking to God, about placing your hope in God. We saw this in Jesus who kept entrusting himself to a judge who judges righteously. We saw this in matters of the persecuted church with regard to slaves. This is such a foundational piece of what strength is. You deep on the inside knowing that God will have the final word. That you don't have to seek vengeance right now, this instant. It's not up to you. Justice does not depend on your ability to do something about it right now. Because God will have the last word. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Therefore, when you are truly strong as a person, and it's based on truth because you are looking to God, the righteous judge, your strength, is going to be imperishable, beautiful, influential, and ultimately give glory to God. And conversely, then, weakness, this passage teaches, compensates for itself with externalities. But ultimately, it does so because it knows that it is hollow, devoid of strength. Notice Peter talks about uh, how women who are trying to submit under husbands who are not obedient to the word, uh, he's instructing them to not focus merely on outer adornment because Peter's fear is if you are just focused on your how you look on the outside, that means you might be compensating for a lack of inner strength on the inside. And you are giving in to the system that men have been using to control you in the first place. And then in verse 7, when Peter's giving instruction to the husbands, what we see is that when you are actually weak on the inside, one of the key ways that you demonstrate that you are weak sauce on the inside is you treat harshly those who are under you. But if you are genuinely, actually strong on the inside, whether you are adorned on the outside or not, it's incidental. It doesn't matter. But if you are actually strong on the inside, one of the ways it shows itself is in the way that you treat those who are weaker than you externally. And so the scriptures, actually, even in the Old Testament, it talks about how you can know the character, the inside of a man, by the way he treats his animals. And husbands, if you are in a culturally, positionally, uh, more powerful position than your wife, and you treat her harshly, what we do know about you is that you are weak on the inside. And that is precisely why you feel the need to treat your, quote-unquote, weaker wife harshly. 
And the way we know that you are actually strong, you can be a king or you can be a pauper, it doesn't matter. The way we know you are strong on the inside is in the way you deal with those who are supposedly weaker than yourself. That's verse 7. Therefore, therefore, weakness then is perishable. Outer strength is perishable. And it's filled with fear. That's verse 6. And it's self-centered because it's trying to perpetuate itself. It's grasping at power it actually does not have. It's compensating. And therefore, outer strength without inner strength to match, that's what the scriptures call weakness, is actually of no value. It's worthless. So you can be positionally strong, but actually weak. And Peter is looking to the wives and pleading with them to rely on their inner strength because obviously, from an external standpoint, they lack positional power and advantage in life. Peter is not saying external circumstances don't matter. Peter is not saying justice does not have to be made visible on the outside and on the inside. What he's saying is, here's a strategy for you. And this is the same strategy employed by Christ himself. This is just a silly little story, but another one that came to mind, which for me represented a turning point in the uh, great saga, uh, uh, the love story of Peter and Susie. Uh, Actually, I haven't told one of these in a while. Uh, But uh, this was my junior year. It was the make it or break it year for Peter and Susie. It was the end of junior year. And... uh, all hope was lost uh, in a galaxy far, far away uh, in a place called Angel Hall and the University of Michigan in, in Ann Arbor. That's where we had computers because back then we didn't have personal computers. We had to go to the computer lab to use computers. These gigantic machines uh, with screens that were anything but flat, about this deep. And uh, I had to check my email, and I had just made another bid to try to uh, date Susie and to share my feelings with her and to ask her out on a date. And uh, I was eagerly awaiting her reply, and I logged into my email account, which, by the way, was called Pine. Anybody remember Pine email accounts? Yeah? Oh, yeah, those were the good days. And uh, so I logged into Pine, and I got a reply from Susie. And you know what it was? It was a big, fat no. But the way she did it was she had gone through the um, Strong's Bible Concordance, which is an ancient thing called a book about that thick, and it uh, sort of parsed out the Bible according to words that it used. So if you looked up a certain word, you can find all the verses that have that word in it. And she had apparently done a word study of the word wait. And this is what Susie and I have come to uh, affectionately call the wait verses. And she emailed me a list, maybe a dozen verses long, of reasons why God loves the idea of waiting more than going ahead. And it devastated me. It just destroyed me. I remember sitting crumpled in my chair in Angel Hall. And I reassessed the situation, and I realized, really, actually, I have no game this is not going to work. None of my charms, 
None of my fierce New York City tactics. It just wasn't working on this good old Midwestern girl. And so I uh, uh, actually had a turning point at the end of my grieving there. And I decided, you know, if Susie's going to turn to the Bible, so am I. And I began to uh, write a reply to her, refuting her verses, verse by verse, with counter verses about why uh, everything is yes and amen in Christ. And I wrote back to her, and that actually, that incident marked the beginning of my reliance on God to get Susie. It really was. I found inner strength. And that is the best story I have for you. And here's what I learned. Strength shines brightly under suffering while weakness crumbles. When the pressure is on, the strength which comes from God that's personal, based on truth, and is placing hope in God, shines brightly. And God uses suffering to strengthen and save us. And God uses how we suffer to win others to himself, and in this case, to me. I want to read you a verse from Philippians chapter 2. Who, this is talking about Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does strength do? Verse 1, in the same way, wives, be submissive to your own husbands. For in this way, in former times, the holy women of also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Now then, we have sort of a, a thought about submission. Submission is trusting God to be ultimately powerful, even when you're positionally weak. Submission is a demonstration of strength rather than weakness. And submission is an acknowledgement that God does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And Peter says submission is the actual strategy. It's not just the way to the strategy, but when you submit, you know what happens? The hidden person is made visible. When you are fighting with your outer strength, your hidden person remains hidden which means God's not getting the glory. It still looks like your strength. But when you are able to find a way to submit, then the hidden person is made visible. Your outer adornment, whether you have them or not, makes way for the Christ in you to be revealed. And so Peter says in verse 1, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own own husbands, so that, what happens? What's the so that? So that the husband is won over to the wife? No, through the wife, to Christ, because Christ is shining through and not you. So here is a statement. God is most glorified through weakness. And the scriptures talk about this again and again and again. That when you are strong, people see you. 
But when you are weak, that is externally, apparently, visibly, positionally weak, then there's an opportunity for God to shine through, for the hidden person to shine through. And so scripture says, when you are weak, then you are strong. So I want to give you one application point. And it's the application point that Peter ends with in verse 7. It's about prayer. All of this, Peter says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. For husbands, definitely. For wives, absolutely as well. Prayer. Prayer is a way to acknowledge your weakness moment by moment and reach outside of yourself, even if it's to an unknown God, for those of you who are not Christians yet. And I tell you, even as a pastor, this is so easy for me to forget to do. For me to have many, many moments throughout the day where I I panic, I react, and I wonder, what do I have? What can I do? How can I do this? And then I realize I haven't even prayed. I haven't reached outside of myself. And so as an application point, I want to ask you this week to pray as often as you can. It doesn't have to be glamorous. It doesn't have to be lengthy. But just in any situation where you feel your weakness, say, God, I need your help right now. I'm confused. I'm weak. I'm lost. I feel anxious. I feel angry. I feel bitter. I feel confused. I feel betrayed. Something's happening right now. I feel my adrenaline flowing, my heart rate increasing, my temperature is increasing. Help. So just pray. And then secondly, I want to invite you to uh, relive, if you have been baptized already, your own baptism today, that you are dying to you grasping at just outer strength, your outer rights, your outer beauty, and saying yes, being born again to strength from Christ from within. Would you bow your heads? God, we have a great example in Scripture of Jesus, the Son of God, who humbled himself to the cross, and he submitted, and he died, and you raised him from the dead. And in following in Jesus' step, either as wives or as husbands or as children or as whoever and whatever we are, we bring ourselves before you, and we admit to you that we actually are very weak, And our lives are very fragile. And our personalities are uh, very fickle. And and we really do need you to be the strength of our heart. And we know, we know that no matter what we tell ourselves, we actually do need you. We don't have the competence or the consistency to to lead our own lives or to love ourselves well. So God, help us today, we pray. Would you pray that in your heart right now? Say, God, please help me. God, be glorified in our lives through our weakness. We look to you together in Jesus' name. Amen.